thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. We're beginning a new series uh, this week. It's a six-week series that the, the purpose of it and the goal of this series is to help each one of us become better established and more rooted in God's love. So my, my prayer for these next six weeks and these next 40 days is that not only of us will we, not only will we learn more about God, but we will draw closer to God. That maybe you're here and you've, you've, uh, you've been saved, but you've never really established a relationship with God. That you would establish that relationship with your Heavenly Father and begin drawing closer to Him. Or maybe you're here and you've had a relationship with God, but it's kind of gone, grown stagnant and cold. And the prayer is that you would reestablish your relationship with God through the lessons that we're going to see for the next several weeks. And we're going to begin this study in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus is meeting with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. This is before Judas has betrayed him. This is before Peter uh, has, has said he would never deny him. On the night before his crucifixion, he gets his followers together. He gets his apostles together. And in John chapter 17, he begins to pray for his followers. He knows what's coming. He knows the next several days are going to be very hard for them. As they, they watch the man they gave up everything to follow for three and a half years, as they watch him die on a cross, he, he knows that they're going to be confused about what's going on. Even though he told them time and time and time again, I'm going to have to die, I'm going to rise again to say to redeem mankind. He told them this, but he, he still knows that they're going to be confused, they're going to be broken, they're not going to understand what's going on, they're going to be scared. And so he begins to pray for them. But what we notice in John 17 is Jesus is not just praying for the apostles that he had with him that day. He is praying for those who would become believers later. Jesus in John 17, if you're a child of God this morning, is his prayer for you. Before his crucifixion, before you were ever born, before anyone in your family tree that you can even remember was ever born, Jesus prayed for you. And we're going to look at that prayer this morning. So let's see how he starts his prayer. In John 17, starting in verse number 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, they should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is, is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So there, there are a lot of beliefs in our culture and our society today about what it means to be a Christian. 
And the thing is that the term Christian has become watered down uh, because of so many other religions and false religions. I mean, of course, this weekend is the, the, uh, the, the convention for the Jehovah's Witnesses over in the Berglund Civic Center. And if you were over there this week, you probably saw them standing there with their signs and their, and their, their shirts and ties. And that's their convention, their yearly convention. They come here and they, and if you've never been to one, don't ever go. Of course, you know, I was raised as Jehovah's Witness, and I was drugged to him every, and I'm like, hell my, I don't know how they get a crowd. I'll be honest with you. I would rather watch golf, and I hate golf. Uh, at least you can sleep through golf. The old ladies wouldn't let you sleep through that thing. But so they call themselves Christians. Now, biblically speaking, they're not. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They don't believe in a literal hell, heaven and a literal hell. They don't believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. So if you take the biblical definition of a Christian, a Christ follower, they're not. But the world calls them Christians. They call the Mormons Christians. Of course, they're not biblical Christians either. They believe that when you die, you become the god of your own planet, and you get to populate that planet with your wife who's eternally pregnant. I don't know why that sounds like heaven for women, but whatever. And so the word Christian has become kind of diluted. And so there's a lot of different beliefs about what it means to be a Christian. Some people think being a Christian is just regularly attending a church. If you get up every Sunday morning, or most Sunday mornings, let's face it, some Sundays you don't want to get up. I'm glad it started raining after y'all were in here today. Because when it rains before y'all get here, y'all don't come. And I get that. I mean, I, don't, I wake up on a Sunday and it's raining. I don't want to come either, but somebody's going to unlock the door. And so now it's raining. It's going to rain for a while. You're stuck here. Settle in. Amen. But if you attend church regularly, then you're a Christian. Some, some people believe that you're a Christian if you have been baptized at a church. Other people believe you're a Christian if you say a prayer or you live your life according to a certain standard or you follow a certain set of rules that your church or your religion has put forth. In this verse, Jesus tells us what true biblical Christianity is. He tells us why Jesus came, and he tells us what the life of a Christ follower is all about. Christianity is about more than heaven and hell. It's about more than the afterlife. It's about more than going to church. The Christian life is about more than just not sinning. Now, those are big parts of it. But the true meaning of biblical Christianity goes much deeper than that. It's it's about more than the afterlife. It's about your life here and now. And the sad thing is, many believers, many Christians, they never get past, they never go further than salvation. Their relationship with God, it goes no deeper than an initial introduction And they struggle in their relationship with God the rest of their life. They never really get to know God. And that's what Jesus is addressing in these verses. That is his prayer for you. That we would truly know God. And so as we begin this new series, we'll see what true Christianity looks like according to Jesus. So first thing we want to see is number one... Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus have to wrap himself in humanity, come down from heaven, live a perfect life? Why why did Jesus have to come 
to earth. And there's a lot of, uh, just like there is a lot of beliefs about what it means to be a Christian, there's a lot of beliefs about why Jesus came. Some people say Jesus came to teach us morals, to teach us how to be good citizens, to teach us how to be good people, to teach us how to treat our neighbors, to teach us how to just be good people. That's why Jesus came. I've heard some people say that Jesus came to fix the political system of his day. He came to overthrow the Roman Empire and set up a, a better uh, social system. Maybe he came to teach us how to be a good person. Maybe he came to teach us how to be successful. But none of those things are true. None of those reasons are the reason why Jesus came to earth. Now, Jesus did teach us, teach us morals. He did, does teach us how to treat people. He does teach us how to be a good citizen and be a good person, but that's not why he came. The Bible tells us why Jesus came. The Bible says in Luke 19.10, says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's, that's pretty straightforward right there. Why did Jesus come? He came to seek to find lost people. He came to find those who were lost and get them out of their lost state. So that raises a question. Well, who was lost? All of us. All of humanity. Everyone who's ever been born of a man and a woman, they were born lost to God. Condemned to hell. And Jesus came to seek and to save all of us. Jesus gives another reason in Matthew why he came. It says, even Matthew 20, 28, says, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So here's another reason that Jesus tells us why he came. So Jesus himself says, hey, this is why I came to earth. I didn't come to be served. I came to be a servant. I came to give myself and give up myself to other people. But then he says, I also came to give my life as a ransom. Now, of course, we all know what a ransom is. It's a price you pay to buy someone back from captivity. You know, someone gets kidnapped and they have a ransom demand. And so we've all seen it in the movies and all this, the drop and whatnot. So Jesus came to pay a ransom. Well, that raises another question. Who was being held ransom and what were they being held ransom by? Again, the answer is us. We were held captive. The Bible says in six, Romans 6.20, says, For when we were yet servants of sin, that word servants there in the Greek, it means slaves. Every person who was ever born was born into slavery. We were born slaves to sin, and there was a ransom or there was a price on our freedom. Because of the sin we were enslaved to, God required a perfect, sinless sacrifice be given to pay for our freedom. So Jesus came, yes, to serve us, but he also came to pay that ransom, to pay that price for our freedom. But it couldn't be any sacrifice. It had to be a perfect, spotless, holy, righteous sacrifice. And only Jesus met those qualifications. Only Jesus was the only one, the only entity who could pay our sin debt and pay our ransom. And he came to do that. He came to pay the ransom for our lives, for our salvation. Here's another reason he came in 1 Corinthians 5.13. Or about his ransom says, How that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to scriptures, 
that he was buried and that he rose again again the third day. According to the scripture, Jesus came to pay our ransom. He came to set us free from sin. But those aren't the only reason he came. Look, these are great reasons. He came to find the lost. That's a great reason. He came to serve. That's a great reason. He came to pay the ransom for our sin debt. That's a great reason. But those aren't the only reasons Jesus came. Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent his for his son, forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Jesus came that we might be adopted into God's family. Jesus came that we could be made children of God. And that's vital because we were enemies of God when we were born. When we came into this world, I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your family history is. When you were born, you were born an enemy of God. And Jesus came to pay our ransom, to pay our sin debt, and to make us children of God. And all these are incredible reasons for coming. But in John 17, Jesus gives us another reason. In John 17, too, he says, And now has given him power over all, thing, all, of all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given to him. Jesus came to give us eternal life. And that's important because as enemies of God, as slaves to sin, as those who were lost, we were facing eternal death. We were born and condemned and headed to hell. A very real place of eternal death where we would suffer forever. And Jesus came to save us from that fate. He came to give us the opportunity to spend eternity with Him and God the Father in heaven. He came to give us eternal life. And according, and the thing is, we needed Him to come for all these reasons. Jesus did all these things that only he could do. We could never have done these things for ourselves. If Jesus had not come, if he had not died, been buried, and risen again, then we would be lost. We would still be enslaved. We would still be enemies to God, and we would be condemned to hell forever. Revelation chapter 21 says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars to have their part in the lake with burners, with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He did all the work needed to give us those things. He did all the work needed to redeem us to God, to adopt us into the family of God, to save us, to pay our sin debt. He did everything that needed to be done. Romans 10.9 says that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Jesus did all the work needed for redemption. He did all the work needed for salvation. All we need to do is put our faith and our trust in His finished work. All we need to do is look to His death, burial, and resurrection and say, God, I believe that's all needed to pay my sin debt. And I accept your gift of salvation. Now look, if you've not done that this morning... If you can't remember a time where you, were, you realized you were a sinner, you were lost, you were an enemy to God, 
You were condemned to hell, and there was nothing you could do to stop it. There was nothing you could do to pay that sin debt. If you didn't realize that, and then realize that Jesus did all the work necessary, and you put your trust in Him, if you've never done that this morning, then you're doomed. You're lost. You're an enemy of God, and you are a slave to sin. You must put your trust in Him. That's your only hope. That's the only thing that can save you this morning is putting your faith and trust in His finished work of salvation. But all of that, that's salvation. That's not being a Christian. That's being saved. And there's a difference. And Jesus addresses that next. So we see, first of all, why did Jesus come? Secondly, what is eternal life? Look again at verse number 3. Jesus said, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. According to Jesus here, eternal life is more than just spending eternity in heaven. Eternal life is more than just avoiding the punishment of hell. Jesus says that eternal life is knowing God. And that's huge. Because that means eternal life isn't a destination we're going to. Eternal life is a relationship we can have today. Eternal life is a relationship we can have right now. Now, he's not talking about knowing just knowing about God. You know, many people know about God and they're not saved. They're not Christians. They have no relationship with him. They have no eternal life. I mean, even Satan and the demons know about God, but they're condemned to hell. The Bible says in James 2.19, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Now, that was a, a kind of a sarcastic comment James gave. James like, oh, you believe in God? Well, great. So does Satan. He's going to hell. That don't help you at all. So knowing about God isn't what Jesus is talking about here. Knowing about God is not enough. We have to have a knowledge of God, a relationship with God. And there's a difference between knowing things about God and actually trusting in God. Trusting in God is a relational exchange. Knowing things about God is an educational event. Trusting in God is transformational. It changes how we handle situations in life. It changes how we treat other people. It changes how we worship God. Jesus came to have a relationship with you. He didn't just come to give you a place to spend eternity. He came to have a relationship with every single one of us. The purpose of life is to know God and to walk with God. To know him. The word know here used in this verse is the Greek word gnosko. It literally means to come to know. It is a word that was used in the Jewish language to describe the intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. The Hebrew word equivalent of it is the same one in, in Genesis where Adam knew Eve and she conceived and had Cain and Abel. It is an intimate, personal knowledge of another. And Jesus says, I came so that you could have an intimate, personal knowledge and relationship with God. That's what God wants with us. He wants our relationship with him to be intimate, to be personal, to be close. 
You know, we think of our favorite Bible characters, we, we tend to think of the great things they did. And the stories we read about, and we think, man, the greatest thing they did was this story. Like David, man, the greatest thing David ever did was, was his victory over Goliath when they were in the battle. No, David's greatest event wasn't great. The greatest thing he ever did wasn't defeat Goliath. The greatest thing David ever did was know God. It means that David's, you know, we all know what David, the Bible says David was a man after God's own heart, but what does that mean? It means that David's heart was open to God. It means that David knew God, and God knew David. We see it in Psalms 139. Said David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is an incredible intimate prayer. David is praying to God, saying, God, I am allowing you to search my heart, to look deep inside and see all the things that that I don't want anyone to see and to point out all the flaws. And Lord, I want you to to search me and, and show me what I need to do to be more like you. And he allowed God to do this because he knew and he trusted God. He knew that whenever God would find in his heart, God wasn't going to condemn him and ridicule him. You know, too many times, that's why we're so closed off to people. We don't trust people because we think if I really let them know what I really am, they'll, they'll reject me. They won't like me anymore. If they really knew what I thought, man, they they wouldn't want to sit next to me in church. The thing is, that may be true about people here, but it's not true with your relationship with God. Because here's the thing, God already knows you. You can think you, you can hide it from God, but you can't. That deep, dark, secret sin that you think no one knows about and you do it when God doesn't see, God knows about it. And God loves you anyway. Now, he wants you to get over that sin. He wants you to conquer it, confess it, and repent of it. But he loves you anyway. He wants to have a relationship with you anyway. So David is seeking an intimate relationship with his heavenly father. That is what made David great. That is what made David a man after God's own heart. That is what made David the only king of Israel that every other king was compared to. And look, we all know about David's great victory with David and Goliath. We also know about David's great sin, David and Bathsheba. And look, aren't you glad your sins aren't recorded in the eternal word of God forever? That even, I mean, just think about it. In 10,000 years when we're in heaven, we're still going to be thinking talking about David and Bathsheba because it's in the eternal word of God. I mean, how's David feel about that? Aren't you glad yours are forgotten in the sea of forgetfulness? David's ain't. But so David, we know about David and Bathsheba, but every king of Israel was compared to David. Because it says his heart was either right with God, as David was, or his heart was turned from God, unlike David. Because David had an intimate relationship with God. That's what made David great. What about Moses? What made Moses great? The fact he led Israel out of Egypt with, the, with all the plagues. The fact he parted the Red Sea. You, know, you all know the story. You've seen the scene where he stands on the shore and says, part, and he stands up his rock and Charlton Heston's there and the water parts and all that. We've all seen the movie. Is that what made him great? No. What made him great was his relationship with his Heavenly Father. Where he gets to speak to God face to face in the burning bush. He got to spend 40 days with God on Mount Sinai. He got to, he was so close to God and so open to God that when, when he spent time with God, his face would glow so bright he scared people. People are like, you've been, you've been too close to God, you've got to cover that stuff up. Has anyone ever said that to you? Everyone has said, you are so close to God, you're scaring me. 
No. But that's what made Moses great. What about Peter? The fact that he walked on water? No, the greatest thing about Peter was his relationship with God through his faith in Christ. The reason you are breathing, the reason that you were knit together in your mother's womb was so you could know God. You are here to know God, to walk with God, to have a relationship with God. That is what makes heaven so great. You know, we know a lot about heaven. You know, it's got walls of jasper. It's got gates of pearl. It's got streets of gold. It's got mansions everywhere. Now, of course, first of all, you know, I say, oh, i got a mansion in heaven because Jesus said in my Father's house are many mansions. Yes, Jesus said in my Father's house are many mansions. Never said we got one. People are like, i got a mansion every hilltop. Who told you that? Jesus just said there's a bunch of it. They're for the angels for all we know. Who knows? They're a summer home. We don't know. But, you know, we all know, oh, it's got walls of jasper. It's got... Now, that's the new heaven. The new heaven will have walls of jasper, gates of pearl, streets of gold. But you know why, why the walls are made of jasper and the gates are made of pearl and the streets are made of gold? Because that stuff's worthless there. It has no value there. You know what makes heaven great? Jesus and God are there. We get to spend eternity with our Heavenly Father. We get to spend eternity knowing Him and fellowshipping with Him. That's what makes heaven so great. Jesus and God are there. Heaven is heaven because it's about Him. It's about knowing Him. It's about being with Him. You know, I've heard a lot of preachers talk or even some old men teach at Sunday school and they're like, man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to go fishing in the Crystal River. No, you're not. You know what every single one of us are going to do when we get to heaven? We're going to go straight to Jesus and just spend time with him. You know what the greatest thing is? We can all do it at the same time. We don't got to wait in line. We can all spend time fellowshipping with our Savior. That is what makes heaven so great because it is about being with him. So if heaven isn't about the stuff that is there, but the one that is there, then our life on earth isn't about the stuff that we can get. Your life isn't about the house you live in, the car you drive, your paycheck. Your life is about Him, about knowing Him, about being with Him. Life isn't about how God will bless you. Life is about being blessed by Him, by knowing Him. Life is about God. It's about getting close to God, about knowing God. And if you're going to be established in Christianity, if you're going to be established in your walk with God, it has to start there. It has to start with knowing God. That's the cornerstone of everything. Through my faith in Christ, I have eternal life, which is a relationship with God that never ends. So that brings us to our third point, third question. So what is true Christianity? So Jesus came to give us eternal life, and eternal life is knowing God. Then true Christianity is having a relationship with God. That's what it is. It is knowing God, walking with God, having a relationship with God. Simple, right? Easy, right? Of course not. 
if it was, so many of us wouldn't struggle in our walk with God. And let's just be honest here, folks. We all struggle in our walk with God. Maybe you're not struggling today, but you may next week. Maybe you're as close to God as you've ever been, but I tell you, we all go through times where we're, we're close to God and we feel like he's right there in times where we're like, where, where are you, God? I mean, David, that's why I love David. David's like a spiritual schizophrenic. You read Psalms and David, in one Psalm, he's like, oh God, you're so close, your love's going to kill me. The next, ver- the next chapter, he's like, God, you're so far away, I can't even see you. Make up your mind, David. But that's what we're all like. We all have times where we struggle in our walk with God. You know, I will say this. Walking with God is simple. Doing it is the hard part. How to walk with God is easy. Actually doing it is is hard. It's like marriage. You know, getting married is easy. Go to the courthouse, get a certificate, stand before a judge if you don't want to wait for the preacher, say a couple verses, pay 50 bucks, boom, you're married. Getting married is easy. Having a marriage is hard. Staying married is simple to do, but actually doing it is complicated. You know what it takes? It takes communication. If, you can't, if you're not communicating with your spouse, you're not going to stay together. You know, people get married. You know why you got married to your spouse in the first place? Because you spent time talking. I remember me and April were dating. We, were, we, we would talk for hours on the, you know, on the phone. Land, you know, when they had landlines and the, had a little curly cord that attached to the wall. That's how old I am. I am curly cord attached to the wall old. And so we'd get one of the, you know, I, did, I used to have a rotary dial, not when I was dating her. That was a little earlier. But, you know, where you got to, how many of y'all remember them? A couple of you. All right, good. We're all old. But so we talk on the phone, and we, we'd talk, and sometimes till you know, 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. What were you talking about? None of your business. We were just talking. I remember one time we were talking, and her, her, I think there was a storm, and power went out real quick and kind of cut us off. And so I called her back at like 3.30 in the morning, and her dad answered. Hello? Hey, Mr. Horsley, who is this? Well, can I talk to April? No, click. So, <laughs> good father, by the way. But you know why I fell in Because we talked and we communicated. Too many people, they, they talk, they communicate, they get to know each other, then they get married, like, okay, I'll talk to you in 50 years. You, getting married is easy, but you, to stay married and have that relationship, it takes communication. It takes spending time together. It takes getting away from the, the kids and, and the hecticness of life and just spending time together. Together, It takes being honest with each other, being open. You know, in Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve, it says after he created Adam and Eve, said they were naked and unashamed. Now, of course, physically they were naked. Yes, we know that. But that's not the point he's talking about. They were open and unashamed of, their, their, of, of themselves with each other. They could tell each other anything. You have to have that with your spouse. Look, will they get mad at some things? Sure. Will God get upset when, he, when you confess? Yeah, but he'll, he'll forgive you. But it's being open and honest and having a relationship with each other. It is allowing your spouse to know more about you than anyone else. And that is what a relationship with God takes. It takes communication. You have to spend time with God in prayer. You have to spend time allowing God to talk to you through reading his Bible. You have to spend time allowing him to speak to you through his word, through worship, and through preaching. You have to be open and honest with God. When you kneel down to pray with God and you start confessing sins, don't leave some out because you think he's going to get mad. He knows anyway. Confess your sins and he's faithful and just 
to forgive us. It is spending time with him. He has to be open and honest with God. And it's, he wants us to humble ourselves and come to him. It is allowing him to know your heart. It's running to him when trouble comes instead of running away. That's what David did. That's what Moses did. That's what Peter learned to do. You know, true Christianity is not coming to a particular church. It's not being baptized. It is knowing God. It is having a relationship with God. It starts with knowing Him as your Savior. If you don't know Him as your Savior this morning, then you can never have a relationship with Him until you do. But if you do know Him as your Savior, you've accepted His gift of salvation, start getting to know Him more. Start spending time with Him. Start opening up to Him. You are here to have a relationship with God. Start one this morning.